You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist, and uh, I have co-hosts on the Long Form Podcast. They're from Long Form, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, guys. Good to be back together again. Yeah, the fam- the family rides again. <laughs> Max, I understand you took to uh, talk to Sean Flynn. I did talk to Sean Flynn. Sean Flynn writes for GQ, used to write for Esquire. Um, he's a real master of this stuff. And, and we went through like the, the full Sean Flynn canon. If you're looking to unleash a cannon on your audience, you might want to start a newsletter through the good people at MailChimp's Tiny Letter, a simple, powerful way to keep in touch with people who care what you're doing. I think we have another sponsor this week. We do. The uh, Literary Reportage Department at the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at NYU. Thanks to both of our sponsors. Uh, here is Max Linsky and Sean Flynn. John, thank you for uh, coming to Dumbo. All the way from North Carolina today. From North Carolina. Thanks for having me. These interviews are a little tricky because there are so many stories that you've done that like, I feel like I could talk to you about for hours individually. So I'm going to try and structure this intelligently and not just tire us out talking about like the perfect fire for three hours and then not getting to anything else. Um, so maybe an easy place to start or a logical place to start is how you pick stories and and how you uh, think about the stories that you're going to do. And, you know, earlier this summer, you published a story about the Boston Marathon. And I guess maybe I'd like to start there. Maybe that'll help us, like, help me figure out how you sort of, like, think about and decide, okay, this is like, this is a story I'm going to pour myself into. So, when did you decide that you were going to do that story? When did you decide that you wanted to tell the story of the Boston Marathon, which is how that story is described? We decided, um, and I say we as me and, and, and Dan Riley and some other editors, uh, we actually decided within the hour um, after the bombs went off. Really? Yeah, I was at home <clears throat> and you know had the TV on. And as soon as it came on, my wife said to me, you have to go, don't you? Um, I lived in Boston for almost 20 years. And that was a story that, that we knew was going to be big. Um, we knew it was going to be important. Um, we had no idea what we were going to do with it. 
but we thought it was important to be there as soon as possible. Um, but we didn't know how to play the story out. Um, you end up, you know, you already had global media there just covering the race. Right. And when you get those media scrums happening, um, they go bad often. You know, people get really pissed at reporters and they don't want to be around you. Um, so for the first week, I didn't really get anything done. I went up there for three, four days. And I met some old friends, um, talked to some old cop buddies, and, and just sort of worked around the edges, and then let it sit for about a week, and then went back. And we knew then, and I actually said this explicitly in the story uh, near the end, the media narrative in all of these things changes very, very quickly. Um, right. It goes from the victims, and it goes from everyone else to the bad guys. And that happens almost immediately. Once you have a bad guy, that's where everything goes to. So it became, by the end of that week, there was a lot of reporting about uh, the Sarnaevs, and everyone else sort of just got reduced to three dead, 250 wounded. So since it had moved on so quickly, um, we figured our best way to tell the story was to go back to what actually happened um, and to just build from, from that moment um, of, of right at the finish line. I, that sounds totally right to me that that it was about the bombers pretty quickly. I also feel like the you know a big you spend a lot of time in that story sort of explaining the backstory behind the sort of iconic image of that day. What did you set out to find out? Like what didn't you know? Because I feel like I mean it was one of those things. You know I was also in uh, I was in South Africa when nine eleven happened, mm-hmm. and I just sat reading for the next two months, you mm-hmm. know, anything, anything I couldn't, it was the same way with this. And I guess I wonder like, what, what did you feel like that media scrum wasn't giving you about that scene and about the people who were on the ground? What didn't you know? I didn't know the real visceral end of it. Um, you know, I, I did a similar sort of, a, I did another terrorist attack story um, in Norway. Right. And that was in some ways a parallel to it. By the time we got to that story, all the media was about the bad guy and what actually happened on the island where the bad guy went and shot 69 people had all been sort of forgotten. It was just, there's just that one sentence, he shot 69 people on an island. Well, that sounded like something that should be explored. Right. Um, and just to, to lay that out, because I, I think it is important to remember how awful these things really are, um, the real impact of, of these really horrific acts. The other important thing to memorialize in Boston when you look at the numbers, you know, three dead is horrible and 250 wounded is horrible. But by all rights, there should have been a lot more people dead. Um, the response there was really terrific. It was, it was um, in some ways kind of superhuman that there were people, my reaction to a bomb is I run away. You know, it, it's, <laughs> uh, and these are people who aren't trained. These weren't combat medics. Right. Um, but these were people who ran towards the chaos um, and saved a lot of lives that day. And I thought that was important to remember. Um, yeah. And to get that all down on paper. It's exactly how this played out. Um, and, you know, obviously, we couldn't get to everybody, but we managed to find you know, some representative people to put that story together. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've really been looking forward to talking to you. I've, I'm a big fan. I'm going to do my best to not, well, like, you. Chris Farley out on this thing. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> You know, going back and reading your stuff, I can't really describe it as like a pleasant experience. 
read that Boston Marathon story is a hard story to read. The Norway story is a, is a really hard story to read. So I guess what you're saying is like part of the goal is to really try and put the reader there. Yes. Um, those should be hard to read. And both of those were very hard to write um, for different reasons. Well, similar reasons, but uh, Why? different in this. Um, Norway got really difficult when I talked to a guy named Freddie Lee um, who had one daughter killed and one daughter wounded there. And he was very explicit um, as to how his kids, how his one daughter was killed and, and how the other was wounded. Um, and it was... It was one of those really horrifying moments when a guy is just looking at you and very calmly explaining how he's on the phone with his daughter and he knows exactly how long he was on the phone with her for and she's just screaming for two minutes and seven seconds and then the phone goes dead because the bad guy shot her in the head and the bullet went out the other side and blew her phone up. Um, that is a horrifying image. By then, though, the story of Norway had just morphed into, oh, Norway has a lenient justice system. What was the bad guy thinking about? What was his manifesto about? And it was sort of the real horror of what the guy did wasn't there. Um, and I think it is important to, to, to record that stuff and, and to keep it out there so people remember that these aren't, these aren't TV shows. Um, this is real damage that real bad guys do to real people. I feel like uh, what I'm hearing you say is kind of like, I want to tell the... Uh, uh, a story that is different than what the media scrum is doing, but you're still the media, like you're Absolutely. still a reporter and you're still right. trying to go in and tell a story about something that like people maybe don't want to talk about. Right. So what's, what's your approach? What it ha put us there? Help us understand what that's like. In Boston, it was very specific. I, I, you know, I have old friends there. Um, I have friends of friends who led me to people. Um, and it was a lot of patience. There was, you have to get used to, you have to get used to feeling like a parasite um, and trying to minimize that as much as possible. Uh, you know, Jeff Bowman was a great kid. He was suddenly famous for standing in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, right. Going into his hospital, he was incredibly gracious, but going into his hospital room knowing that a thousand other reporters are trying to get to him. Um, and he's, you know, waiting for the nurse. He's talking to me while a nurse is waiting to dress his burns um, and to redo the bandages on his legs. Were you the first reporter that had talked to him? I don't think so. I don't know for sure. Um, How'd you get in the room? Oh, he very wisely um, had a, a media person. Um, uh, I believe it was a friend. Um, who happens to be a, like a communications professional. And she stepped in very quickly, and phone calls got routed to her, and that was actually a huge relief. Yeah. Because, um, you know, going and knocking on these doors, when you know there's been 1,500 reporters there before you. Right, and the door is a hospital door. Yeah, exactly. Um, and actually, even getting into that was hard because everyone had code names, and, you know, the, the hospital staff was keeping everybody at bay. But in that same hospital, you know, I talked to a person who was pretty seriously wounded who was a friend of a friend um, and that's where I got the access but that person was uh, didn't want to talk um, was gracious enough to tell me um, that they weren't going to talk and said that, that 
that she remembered everything that happened very vividly. But that was hers. You know, the other people can go on Oprah. The other people can talk to people. That was hers, and she wasn't going to give the bad guys that power over her. She wasn't going to let them take that away from her. She, doesn't, she wasn't going to let them know what they'd done to her. Um, and it was, it was kind of powerful, and I kind of felt really shitty for even being there because <laughs> yeah. I, I couldn't disagree with it. And I think I, I, I told her that, that I completely agreed with her. I, I wouldn't talk to me either. Um, I'm always amazed that people talk to us. Um, for the other folks who were, were you know, uh, uh, Mike Powers and Stephen Segatori um, and Charlie Krupa, those were, were friends of friends, names I'd seen someplace, um, and just, you know, again, sort of gently going forward and saying, this is what I'm going to do. Um, this is what I want to do. And, and just waiting for people to get back to you. And, and just, there's a lot of patience. It's hard not to feel like a dick. <laughs> it really is. I mean, yeah. It's, and, and, I mean, what about those stories? Why are those the stories that you're, you seem to be sort of gravitating towards? Those seem to be the ones that you're interested in doing. And part of the thing that, that you know, comes through going back and, and sort of reading the last several years of your work is, it seems to me like you have a really, you have a pretty clear goal, which is that you want to just tell the story of what happened in these terrible moments, whether it's Norway or Boston or the oil rig, you know, or the Chilean mine that you want to, you want people to know what that moment was like, not the aftermath and not the mm -hmm. beginning. Uh, why? why? Why are you drawn to those stories? Wow. That's, that's, uh, I'd never actually considered it and I probably should. <laughs> um, we can come back to that you can think of that answer yeah uh, I'm trying to be patient yeah no I understand it's um, I don't think it happened intentionally um, but obviously I, I, I do see, tend to go back to those don't I <laughs> um, yeah um, I guess I I, I I find it satisfying to be able to give a voice to people who sort of get lost in that. Um, you know, when these big, horrible things happen and the spotlight is very briefly on them and then it moves away and, you know, it's not that I'm like dragging them out and forcing them to relive your horrible moments. Um, it's more of a thing of if you'd like to relive your horrible moment, if you want people to know what actually happened, um, talk to me. I, I will tell your story. And I don't know why, actually, I'm, I'm drawn to those. But I, I guess I have been. Uh, that's a stumper. Well, you know, I, I um, yeah, well, I've got theories, but who cares? The No, I'm curious. What are your... Th well, my theory is that if you've been doing this for a really long time, there's a combination of the degree of difficulty of those stories and the purity of those stories that might be appealing. So they're really hard to do, and at the same time, they're sort of like the simplest story you can do, kind of, mm -hmm. right? So it's like the conflict is there and the trauma is there, and you can all you have to do is sort of find out what happened and tell the story because you know there's no there's no like frills necessary. There's no it, it's like uh, point A to point B to point C, but it's a really hard story to tell. There's definitely. A big element of that. Um, I've learned over the years that 
I'm not a polemicist. Um, I'm not um, a pure analysis writer. I'm not a political writer. Um, I like narratives. Um, I like going from A to B to C. And I, I do like just telling a story. Um, and I hope I'm picking the, the, the important ones. Let's dial back a little bit. So, so uh, you were yeah, involved. You started off tough, man. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm trying to get better at this. So if you like, uh, you can give me some no, advice about good. how to do this. No, you're good. It's like stuff I hadn't thought about. Because I, 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 I don't dwell on this stuff. How would much. you start this interview? What's like? No, how, I, it's not you, a criticism. When it's, you do these interviews, I'm not asking for a criticism, but like when you do these interviews, where do you start? Like if you're, if you're, if if I had gone through some horrible traumatic thing, how would you start talking to me? What's your What's your first question? That would totally depend on circumstances. It would be some small talk. Mm-hmm. I know that. Um, we made some small talk before we, we did started. make some small talk. Yes, we did. <laughs> um, we would ease into it. It's. It's. I was asked that recently by somebody else, and for I was asked about very specific interview techniques, um, and I don't really have any sort of set pattern, um, and it's not. It's not like morally safer, you know, sitting down at, on, on the set of 60 Minutes here. Right. It's, um, it's just a conversation. Um, so I, I would, you know, we'd have our small talk, and I'd start to feel around the edges and see what you responded to and what you were going to be open to. And, and I would – so like Freddie. Uh, go back to Freddie Lee because yeah. that's actually a concrete example. Um, I met Freddie outside the courthouse in Oslo. He was sitting at a sidewalk cafe – uh, with a friend of his drinking beer. And we talked for probably two, two and a half hours. And he didn't tell me the specific details about his daughters until the last three minutes. Um, we talked about his job. Uh, we talked about the town where he lives. Um, we talked about his youngest daughter who wasn't on the island. We talked about all sorts of stuff. And it was just a very... You know, I bought him some beers. He bought me some beers. And we just sort of kind of hung out. Yeah. And then eventually you just sort of coax things out and just let it let it sort of evolve. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Um, I mean, people aren't going to tell you things if they're not comfortable with you. Right. So that's really the, the objective is to be comfortable. And I don't think you can fake that. You know, empathy is, is – sincere empathy is really important. Um, I mean, people know when you're bullshitting them, and people know when you're just trying to get a quote. Um, and you know, fortunately, I, I am very—I'm genuinely curious about this stuff, and I'm genuinely empathetic about it. Um, and it sort of—you just let it come out. What got you started in the first place doing this kind of work? <laughs> um, I was homesick in college. That is, uh, yeah, my first semester um, as a freshman at Ohio University. Um, I was kind of bored, and and I joined the newspaper staff there. Uh, We had a great independent daily, um, and I sort of stuck with it. And that was, I don't know, I was good at it. Um, And then I didn't really do anything else. You know, it's... I was a journalism major, but that's sort of a I, – I hate to make anyone who just blew a bunch of money at Columbia feel bad, but <laughs> um, I didn't really learn much in journalism school, and we were supposed to have a great journalism school, um, but I learned a whole lot working for a student daily, mm-hmm. and 
I got a job right when I graduated. You, know, I you graduated. shouldn't feel bad. You're not the first person to come okay. on and say, uh, Good. <laughs> I learned a lot more doing it than I did studying yeah, exactly. it. Um, I graduated on a Saturday, started work on Monday. And I've just... In Ohio? Yeah. A uh, small daily newspaper in Marietta, Ohio. What were you covering? County government, um, which in rural Ohio is a, a, a big deal. Yeah. The sheriff's department is, is your law enforcement and... Those courts and cops and the sewer board and the goat sale at the county fair and you know it was a little bit of everything. Right, and a right, bunch of small right, like twenty villages. stories a week. Yeah, that old storied beginner grunt reporter job that that I don't think it even exists anymore. At know? that time, were you like, uh, what I really want to do is like sink my teeth into some longer thing? No, um, sort of. I mean, I think at that point, my dream job would have been like like a metro columnist at the Columbus Dispatch. Um, and if that had worked out, I, I would have, I'm sure, taken the buyout like 15 years ago and <laughs> would not be in PR. <laughs> right. um, I just, I had a, a, a series of, of very happy coincidences. Um, the paper Marietta hired a guy from Brookline. Um, and he uh, his father was friends with Stephen Mindich. Who owned the Boston Phoenix? Sure, and he was like, "R.I.P." Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, um, I, I gotta say, I, there was part of me. You're not happy to see the thing go under. I was. There was part of me that I worked in all weeklies for a long time, and there was part of me that was just kind of like was happy to see it not turn into like a fucking shitty, yeah, like listings pamphlet put out by a 12 year old. Yes, I was. I, it was. It was like a. It was a graceful death, kind of. Probably the people who who got canned on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> I mean, it was very sudden. But yes, I'd, I'd agree. In the with lifespan you. of the paper, yeah, yeah. It, it could have been. There's also the it weird like plastic surgery glossy years at that. Yeah. But you know, you know, he, could have been sadder. I guess. He, he, yeah, no, I, I. But I know exactly what you mean. It, it, it was. I, I thought it was. Um, it was kind of classy. Just to. Okay, it's not working. Let's. We're not going to try to fake it. With anyway, so yeah. So you're at the Phoenix. So. Uh, so I sent some clips to the Phoenix, and uh, I ended up moving to Boston. I sold everything I owned to move to Boston to freelance for the Phoenix. Um, and I did that for a few months, and I got a job there. And I've just had jobs in journalism ever since. So you took a plunge. You didn't have the job. Yeah. You, you I, moved without the job. Yeah, for a $100 a week retainer, <laughs> um, which when I think back, I mean, that was just kind of foolish. Um, Seems like it worked out. It did. It worked out. Um, Do you remember trying to like acclimate yourself to Boston? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. Uh, Were you just bringing the like the county reporter game to Boston? I was. I, I was slinging it, man. Um, it was. I mean, Boston was like a really huge city to me. Yeah. Um, it was big time. So it was, and I was working for, um, you know, Richard Gaines was the editor then. And I was working for Mark Jerkowitz, and I was uh, I was just one of those guys who was sent out to like write about gangs and <laughs> needle exchanges and just all the things that that alt weeklies do. And it just felt really gritty and kind of yeah. cool. Um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, and I learned a lot, and so I stayed there for I think four years. And then I, I went and got a job at Boston Magazine for about 18 months, which was just horrible. Um, and then shifted again. I went to the Herald. 
um, before the Herald went completely insane. Something good happened at Boston Magazine, though, right? When I went back to Boston Magazine. Ah. Yeah, I went back to Boston Magazine when Craig Unger was running it. Um, and it was good then. Um, and I learned a lot from Craig, who's uh, Vanity Fair now, I think. Sure, I don't know. Yeah. He's, yeah. Anyways, I learned a lot from Craig. Um, and then I took another plunge. Um, I ended up quitting that job uh, with really nothing but one freelance story for Esquire under my belt. Um, Where in the chronology of that did you, like, uh, expose Barnacle? Uh, <laughs> um, hasn't seemed to have hurt him, has it? Uh, <laughs> he seems fine. <laughs> but, you know, he's, like, he's fulfilling his destiny. You know, ex- expose is... is a pretty dramatic word. I mean, it was really fish in some a barrel. Pe- some people, <laughs> some was, people listening might not know that story. So maybe you could just quickly, like, uh, yeah. So Mike Barnacle um, was a Metro columnist at the Globe, and I was actually uh, always a very big fan of his. Uh, but in the early '90s, before me, um, Boston Magazine started looking at some of his columns and and thinking, "Huh, this is a little too good to be true." Let's go see if we can find these people. And the first one was about some guy who got a phone call out of the blue from a distant lover um, who was suddenly dying of cancer, and he packed up everything he owned and drove to New Orleans to be with his old sugar while she was dying. It was a classic, noirish, romantic barnacle tale. So they they sent a a staff writer out to go find this guy. They couldn't find him. Um, And that just became sort of the barnacle watch. And it was, you know, he would recycle Mike Royko columns. He would make up the same column with just a few. It even, wasn't consistent with making him up. <laughs> um, they were all really was, great reads, he was, though. He was making up columns that he had already made up before. Yes. And, and like, he, he told the, the same Christmas column, like, three times. But <laughs> it's awesome. Kept, you know. Yeah, it's like, really too bad this happened before the Internet. Well, that's actually what killed him because early on, um, he had told uh, uh, the young guy at, at Boston um, uh, when he couldn't find Tommy Boyle. That was the guy we were trying to find originally. Um, Mike said, uh, don't tell me you've checked all the usual sources. Do you have every fucking phone book in America? Well, it turns out with the Internet, we do. Um, <laughs> we still couldn't find him. Um, anyways, it was, uh, you know... I don't. I bear Mike Barnacle no ill will. They were kind of fun stories to write. Did you ever like? Uh, did you ever run into him face to face? No, no. He would never. Um, he would only agree to talk to me, you know, conveniently like after deadline. Right. Um, so it was like, you know, I can talk to you the first week in September. Well, <laughs> you know, my deadline's the first week in August. I got a bunch of columns to write between now and then. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I haven't made my career off of that. It was like a fun little aside. I understand. Well, we we've got some like. Journo nerds who listen to this thing. They deserve to hear that. <laughs> um, all right. So you've, you've been kind of wandering around Boston media, and, uh, and then you get an assignment for Esquire. How'd that come about? Um, Andy Ward was a young, new editor at Esquire. Andy Ward is like one of the great through lines Andy of this is, podcast. Yeah, he, he's a legend. Um, Andy was my editor for 11 years. And when he left to go to Random House, it was it was like a divorce, <laughs> a, a very amicable, heartbreaking divorce. I mean, he's still a dear friend, but it was really, really hard to lose Andy. Um, he's he's brilliant. So, anyways, I'm sure he comes up a lot. Yeah, all the time. So he was very young, and he needed writers, and 
he knew someone who knew someone who knew me and he called me and I think at the time he wanted like something about Whitey Bulger, um, which I mean, everybody wanted something about Whitey Bulger. Um, we spent about a year just kicking around ideas. And then there was a guy named Kerry Stainer uh, who killed four women in Yosemite. Then he got caught. Um, and when I did a piece on him, which was, I mean, it was your pretty straight up serial killer mm-hmm. piece. What I mean, it was a straight up serial killer piece, but it was a pretty far outside of Boston, but b like your first piece for a big national magazine. Yeah, yeah. Was not, it not was it daunting? Were you like for, nervous? I was terrified. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, because it was. Um, you only get one shot at this stuff. Right. I mean, you you screw it up. And right. You turn in a clunker on that first assignment, yeah. and there's not going to be a second one. It's done. So yeah, I was terrified. Um, and I remember being a little surprised when, so I went out to California and, and you know, reported the hell out of it and came back and a photographer was out there and for some reason the bad guy agreed to talk to her. She just like went to the county jail where he's being held and said she wanted to take his picture and he's like, yeah, you know, talk to the jailers. And he said, yeah, sure. Uh, but she didn't want to, she didn't want to like, she didn't want to talk to the serial killer. <laughs> um, and I remember hearing that, and I was thinking, because, you know, I'd, I'd worked at the Herald. I'd worked at Boston Magazine, not big budget places. I remember thinking I was so pissed that she was out in California, and the bad guy wants to talk to her, and she's not going to do it. And, man, well, Esquire sent me back there. I, and meanwhile, Andy's thinking, shit. Well, will he actually go back to California to do this? So right. it was sort of, it was that was sort of a nice introduction to <laughs> you know working someplace with some resources. Yeah, um, and and having the chance to go back there and, and talk to the bad guy at that point, it's like okay, I got this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, yeah, Andy and I just clicked really well. Um, we put together a pretty good story. And then the next one you did was the Perfect Fire, which is yeah. which is this um, for anyone who has not read it, just like press pause and go read it and then come back that it is it is a really ambitious story it was um yeah that was you know that was two years before 9-11 um so maybe you could just quickly give the like yeah, the like um, recap uh on december 3rd 1999 there was a, a warehouse in worcester massachusetts that caught fire um big cavernous maze-like place um and six firefighters died uh, two got lost and then guys kept going to try to find them, and it's like the building was picking them off two by two. It took them eight days to recover the bodies. And at the time, it was the worst firefighting disaster in a generation. That led the national news eight nights in a row until they found the bodies. It was just a horrific, horrific tragedy. Everybody wanted to do the long story. Um, I mean, everybody. The families were getting hounded. Um, so they sort of agreed they were going to talk to somebody. And again, that was just sort of, I knew someone uh, who knew the right people, and that got me some entree. Um, it took a very long time, and, and I remember... It took a long time to get entree? Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, I mean, because there was a lot. I mean, you have six widows, um, you know, more than a dozen kids who lost their fathers, Um yeah, it was. There was a lot going on. Dealing with reporters wasn't anyone's top priority here. 
Um, but Andy kept lying to David Granger, which is why I just loved him. Um, I kept telling him, I was like, Andy, I, I have nothing. I haven't got anything. And then Granger would say, Andy, how's that fire story going? Oh, great, boss. Great. Going great. <laughs> um, so he managed to buy me a whole lot of time. Uh, but then eventually I, I met all the families at once. Um, and they all agreed to talk to me, like, as a group. Um, so then it was several weeks of just going from family to family. Um, a lot of nights hanging out in firehouses. Um, there were some guys who never spoke to me. Um, there were a lot of guys who spoke to me a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it, it became, it was, ended up being a very ambitious story and it was, you know, trying to weave, it's a story with like 12 protagonists. Right. Um, which was a little difficult to get them all woven together so you didn't lose the emotional impact of it. Um, when you've been given, I mean, when you've been given the privilege by people in that position to tell their story, yeah. do you feel, I mean, how much pressure do you feel to do it justice? How much are you thinking about them while you're working on the story? Enormously. Um Especially since, because that was that was so much bigger than anything I'd done before. Um, I mean, I had six families sitting on my shoulders the whole time I was writing it. You know, because I knew their kids were going to read this when they were old enough. Um, you know, I had firefighters who, you know, sat up with me till four in the morning, and you know, weeping. Mike McNamee, who was the chief in charge that night, um, who's still a dear friend. Um, you know, they put a lot of trust in me to tell their story and to tell it well. What was their response when it came out? Good. Good. I mean, but, you know, good sounds... I mean, good is a strange word. Um, uh, you know, they, they were satisfied with it. Um, they all agreed to cooperate with the book later. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, Mike and I are still close. Mike and his his wife, Joanne. Um, I was still, I, I just saw Denise Brotherton, uh, maybe a year ago, two years ago now. Um, I haven't spoken to Mary Jackson in quite a while. Um, but some of the other firefighters, um, you know, I still check in with them on, on occasion. When you finish a story like that, how do you, how do you like present it to the people who are in the story? Do you wait for them to find it on their own? I'm trying to remember what I did with that one. Um, I'm pretty sure with that one, I would have made sure they all got copies. Yeah. What do you do now? Um, it depends. Um, sometimes I make sure copies get out. Sometimes I just wait. The internet's really made that much different though too. I mean, it's much easier just to send a link. Right. Um, and it's easier for them to find it now. Mm -hmm. Um, so it depends. I I have detached a lot more. Yeah. Do you like sit down with people and talk it out afterwards? No. Um, you know, if they call me and they want to talk it out, sure. Um, but it's, you can't be close to all those people forever. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know if I could absorb that much, if, if that makes sense. I, I don't sure. mean to be callous about it, but it's, no. it's um, I, I sort of experience what they've experienced um, uh, vicariously, and it's hard to absorb all of that and, and to carry, you know, Mike and I are still friends because Mike and I are friends. We just genuinely like each other. Um, but 
over, you know, 15 years, and certainly even before that, you know, I, I was covering crime at the Herald. So, I mean, there's been, there's been a lot of widows. Right. Um, it, it starts to add up after a while. How do you, how do you keep yourself healthy? Um, you know, I play with my kids. I mean, it, it's, um, I don't actually see that much. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, like, like I have friends who do combat stuff. Um, those guys are nuts. Uh, and they see <laughs> never held of, any appeal for you. No, no, I did one tour in a war zone and, and that's enough for me. Um, I learned pretty quickly that I'm a coward. Um, <laughs> it's, I don't like people pointing guns at me. I don't like shit blowing up. That's not for me. Um, but I have some very dear friends who are like addicted to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're all a little bit nuts. Um, <laughs> um, very brave, but nuts. Um, so I, I hear a lot and I have to process a lot. Um, but there is a way to, to sort of mentally detach from it because I am taking this material and trying to put it into a story. So right. I have to feel it. Um, I have to internalize a lot of it, but I can let it go when I'm done with it. Um, Are there any that have really stuck with you? Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly the fire has. Um, there are people who've stuck with me. Um, some people in Norway, um, a widow from the oil rig, um, a couple of girls in Moldova. There's been, yeah, yeah, there have been uh, an Iraqi bomb technician. Um, there have been quite a few, actually, that I still think about with yeah, some, some just, regularity. They just kind of like uh, linger, sort of. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, just for whatever reason, I'll, I'll, I'll something will cross my mind, and, and I'll think about, you know, Natalie Roshto or 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 Freddie Lee, or you know, just. I mean, I don't dwell on it. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's not, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not sitting around morose. I understand. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, I live in North Carolina. It's, it's. I play with my kids. I cut the grass. I, I plant tomatoes. Um, I want to ask you about a couple of more stories, which are not profoundly tragic, terrible stories. Okay. <laughs> well, one of them is kind of tragic and terrible, but uh, actually both of them are kind of tragic and terrible, but they're tragic and terrible in different ways. <laughs> different ways. Um, the first one is the James Brown story. Yeah. Which is which is really like one of my all-time favorite stories. Thank you. Um, and it's a little bit different than the other stuff that you've done. It's like it's like the only kind of celebrity-ish thing you've done, although it's barely yep. like a celebrity story. It's really about sort of about like everyone but him kind of yeah um what was the genesis of that was that was that your idea was that assigned? how'd that work that that was assigned um it was you know the the annual love sex and madness issue was coming up and there had been just some discussion about the fight over james brown's estate which was getting a little bit of attention not a lot didn't seem like that big of a deal um it was assigned as a pretty short court story um so I drove down to Aiken, South Carolina. It's a lovely little town. I went into the courthouse, um, introduced myself, said I was there to see the James Brown file. When you when you go to a small town like that and you're like, I'm from GQ, are people like, oh shit, or are people like, gee what? Uh, a little of both. Um, no, I never get, oh shit. Uh, I get, wow, you're here to write about the best dressed court clerks? <laughs> you know, it's all, here to write about the best dressed cops? It's... The joke gets old. Yeah. Um, 
we had but to, I have to laugh every time too. It's just like you got to be pleased. <laughs> yeah, please talk to me. Um, so <laughs> can't get bit out of shape about it. Yeah, no, it it's, defeats the purpose. So you were down in the courthouse. Yes, yeah, so I went down to the courthouse, asked you the James Brown file, um, and a woman pulled out a drawer of a filing cabinet and said, "There it is." And I said, "Well, which one?" But that's it, the whole thing. I was like, "Wow, this whole drawer?" I said, "Yeah, there's three boxes out in the hallway too." Holy crap. Um, so I started going through it, and it was just the charges and countercharges, and, and I started pulling names out. Um, you know, Roosevelt Royce Johnson and, and LaRonda down in Houston and, and uh, Cinnamon up in Vancouver. And we just said, okay, let's, let's just dive into this one. And so we just started bouncing around. Um, you know, I just started, it was like down to Atlanta, up to Cleveland, down to Houston, over to Vancouver, to New York, back to Atlanta, up to Chicago, and just, you know, one person led to another person led to another person. And it was just, it was this fascinating kaleidoscope um, of all these people who all had a different take on this guy. Yeah, um, I just, it's hard for me to imagine you not doing one of those, like, uh, cliche, like, police boards with, like, lines drawn between everyone. Yeah. And, like, how, how do you, when you have a story that's, like, that disparate with that many characters, how do you, like, organize it? How do you structure it? You know, that, that was, um, we decided the most effective thing to do um, was first one of those, and on the opening spread, we did close to one of those police graphics. Yeah. Um but we decided to, to after, you know, a, a decent opener, um, we decided just to lay it all out, just to, to really just stack it up. Um, this is happening, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. Wait, there's more, uh, <laughs> which was literally the line we put in there. Wait, there's more. Um, and just kept piling it on so that you would get really quickly how fucked up it was, you know, right. utterly surreal that all of this stuff could be happening the, the, the amount of greed and family bitterness and yeah, it was a really bizarre. And then all the peripheral characters, I mean, everybody trying to make a buck off the guy. Um, there was a lot of characters involved. The other story <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, which is also tragic, but in a different way is the, uh, you did like a trilogy of stories on sex tourism. Yeah. What was the, what was, what was the origin there? Which is distinct from what you've done, but also distinct from what like, magazines do i mean i can't even remember the last like it's a it is a trilogy it is yeah. like a three-part came out over successive issues big magazine story yeah so what, what, what's the backstory there um andy called me and and uh my first son was due in june and he said is literally what he said jim has a project he wants you to do um you're going to travel the world and it's going to be a three-part series and you should do it because once you have a kid, you're not going to want to do this stuff anymore. So you should definitely do this. I said, okay, what is it? He said, I need to know that you're going to do it before I tell you. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll do it. And he said, uh, uh, the sex trade. I was like, oh, fuck. Because <laughs> um, it wasn't something that, that was really on my radar screen. Um, <laughs> sex trade wasn't on your radar screen? No, it's just it, it never, you know, and, and we started – the preliminary research was we were looking at, at you know, of course, we, we start uh, – the obvious story is, is the undercover sex tourist thing. Okay? Right. Not going to do it. Um, so then profile the sex tourist. You know, those guys don't talk. Um, <laughs> they are creepy. Um, didn't – very quickly didn't find them interesting. 
at all. So we just had to look for three different, I defined three different places to go, um, and we just looked for three different ways of telling this story. Um, I think we did all right. You know, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah, sure. Um, it was, yeah, it was a very ambitious project. That, that, that's, I mean, knock on wood here, because I've got this tremendous gig. I mean, Jim Nelson really believes in long-form journalism, and, uh, you know, he puts out a terrific magazine, and he puts resources into this stuff, and... So yeah, um, there you go. That's how it came up. It was all Jim. Was it fun? Um, no, not really. <laughs> um, I did all three stories with a photographer named Lisa Carezzi, Uh and Lisa and I kind of bonded. Um, we got a little burnout. Yeah, you know, by the time you're you know in month number six and you're in Costa Rica for the third time. And you're going to go back to another prostitute bar. (laughs) You know, it's getting a little old. Uh, So you've done all these stories, man, and and we got to actually talk about some of them. What was the hardest one that you did? In terms of access or in terms of emotional toll? Uh, Journalistically difficult was what I was – I mean, reporting, I guess, is what I was thinking. Reporting and writing, that combination. Not – we can get off like you're – inner tumult after publishing these things. Yeah. <laughs> <Did like. laughs> um, well, I've actually had a really good run. Um, do you think that that's luck or do you think that's about the way that you approach this stuff? Like a thing that you haven't said that a lot of people say that we I've talked to is like um, every time I finish a story, I'm like, fuck, I'm never going to find another one. This is the best one I've ever going to get. Wow. There's like big existential crisis after the thing finishes, which is not yeah. something you said. No, but my because you haven't asked me about that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have big existential crisis after you finish stories? Not existential. Um, uh, but I never think this is the best thing I've ever written, and I'm never going to find another one. I usually think this is the worst thing I've ever written. God, I can't wait for the next one. <laughs> There's got to be something else out there. Um you know, back back to the the, the hard to report thing. Um, I think that what some people would think is think of as being hard to report, I actually see as kind of fun. I mean, I I really like reporting. I don't like writing. I actually hate writing. Really? Yeah. Um, despise it every second of it. Uh, but the reporting, I really like. Um, I have had a great string of luck, um, but I like going someplace where I've never been and I have nothing and I've got to go find it. Um, it's a lot of just, you know, knocking on doors and calling people. Um, you know, I did a story on piracy in the Seychelles, really hard to arrange from here. Um, so I went to the Seychelles with a cell phone number of some government minister's secretary. And when I got there, she said she couldn't help me. So, you know, Jim Nelson's just flown me to the Seychelles to do a story on piracy, and I got nothing. So I start to panic for a little while, which is a very typical. It's it's the same cycle, and mm-hmm. I've, my my wife talks me through it all the time. Now she just reminds me. Um, I start to panic, and then call Andy lie, call Andy and lie, um, and then uh, and then I calm down, and and I go. I talk to a lot of bartenders, a lot of doormen. Um, I knock at a lot of doors. And and it's it always seems to work out. You know, eventually I find what I'm looking for if I just keep looking. And and I don't I don't really mind I don't like the panic part, 
but I eventually get over that. You know, once once I get the first step, then I stop panicking and I know it's all going to fall together eventually, somehow. Your dad was a detective. How do you know that? I did my research. It's good. Did I write that down somewhere? Maybe. Wow. Okay. Yes, he was. How it's interesting. How, how do you think your dad's being a detective, your dad's work informed maybe uh, your reporting or how you like to report? Um, you know, my father didn't talk a lot about his work. He was very concerned, very conscious um, of the difficulties a cop's kid could have. You know, I, I say that I grew up in Cleveland, but I actually grew up in Lakewood, Ohio, which is just, it's on the west side of Cleveland. Um, it wasn't a big city. Everyone knew my dad was the cop. You know, like the potheads in high school knew my dad was the cop. Right. Um, so he was, he tried to keep all of that very, very separate. Um, but at the same time, uh, he would probably deny this, but my father has a lot of empathy. Um, I think he was always very fair to people. Uh, and as I got older, you know, I, I knew some of the, the, the sort of bad guys who he'd arrested, who kind of turned themselves around. I mean, he cut a lot of people breaks. Um, and I think, again, I I swear he'd deny this, but I, I think he had a real genuine curiosity about how people get into their situations. Um, so I, I think that sort of informed, you know, not just the work. I mean, it doesn't consciously, but obviously it formed who I am. Do you ever talk to him about what you're doing? I mean, talk oh, yeah. about like the actual process. Does he ever give you like t- tips on how to sort of open doors and stuff? He used to. Um, now you don't need any tips. Yeah, I don't really need the tips. And, and, and I'm, <laughs> Sorry, it's, that it's question sort of, was insulting. <laughs> well, no, but it, no, it, it, it's, it's actually, it's a great question, but it, it's, I don't think he would, you know, I, I took a taxi out to the middle of the Atacama Desert um, to go write about trap. I mean, what tip do you give someone for that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you just kind of show up. Uh, but yeah, and I'll certainly call him, you know, for, for uh, 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 I used to a lot more, but I mean, it's eventually just absorbed the stuff. You know, I used to ask him a lot about police procedure stuff and, and you know, the real nuts and bolts of things. Do the adventures ever get like routine no no it's really it's the best part of it um yeah it's really it's it's um i've gotten to see a lot of the world um a lot of very strange places and talk to a lot of really interesting people um no that that part never gets i mean once that part gets old then it's time to go find something else to do i think i'm actually out of questions wow okay what should, what should I have asked you that I haven't asked you? I have no idea. Because I'm man. new to this. I, I am, uh, uh, I'm never on this side of it. I know. Well, how's it been to be on that side of it? Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> um, not, not, not because of you in the least, um, but I've sort of realized that, that I haven't thought about a lot of things that, that maybe I should think about. Maybe I'm just thinking about it too much. Mm, I don't know. Those are all good questions. I... I, I yeah. I'm trying to figure out why I'm drawn to those stories. I'm going to work on that. Yeah, I'm interested. I mean, it's it's funny. Like, uh, you've actually been doing that for a long time, I guess. I was yeah. thinking sort of, I, I think I phrased that question as like, you've been doing those more, but I guess you've kind of been doing those the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, yeah, not so, um, 
Yeah. I guess, it, yeah, it, it, it's, I, I don't do happy stories. My mother-in-law thinks I should write about whales or <laughs> cows or something. Happy. Well, if you figure out why you're drawn to all these stories of uh, tragedy and sadness. I, w- I will come back and demand more studio time. Fair game. Um, Sean, thanks very much for coming. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner, and our intern this week was Robin Jodlowski. Thanks so much to Sean Flynn for coming in. I really uh, enjoyed talking to him. Thanks also to Tiny Letter and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute at NYU for sponsoring this week's show. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.